Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you on my show. Would you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Tom Schwartz. I'm a professor of history and political science at Vanderbilt University. Um, and I've authored uh, a number of books. One is uh, Lyndon Johnson in Europe in the Shadow of Vietnam. Uh, recently, a book on Henry Kissinger and uh, a political biography. So I've, I work on um, American foreign relations, but American political history in general. How'd you get interested in writing a book about Lyndon Johnson in Europe? Okay. Um, well, I had written an, uh, I had written an original book about uh, U.S. policies in Germany after World War II. And then I was asked to do an article uh, updating that to look at German policies of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. So I wrote an article for a collection, and then um, I got a phone call. Um, I got a phone call from uh, Francis Bator, who was um, the national security advisor to Johnson, uh, during the uh, late 60s. And uh, Francis was an interesting man. He was a Harvard Kennedy uh, School professor, political economist. Um, and he called me up and he said, you know, I read your article and you're wrong. Um, and uh, you, you got things wrong about Johnson. And I was intrigued by his reaction. And so this started a relationship um, which lasted for almost 20 years. Um, I got to know Francis uh, quite well. Um, worked with his papers at the Johnson Library. Um, he was a really remarkable figure. And he had the portfolio in the Johnson administration for Europe. And basically, we um, uh, underwent a dialogue about Johnson's European policies and also his own relationship with Johnson. And he had a different perspective on Johnson than what I had been used to and uh, gave me a, a, a different insight into how Lyndon Johnson ran his presidency and much more favorable than I had been led to believe. What's what were you saying that caused him to say that you were wrong? Well, I portrayed Johnson as as pretty heavy handed in how he dealt with European policy. I portrayed him as largely ignorant of what the United States was doing in Europe. Um, I portrayed him in very much the stereotypical way of a, a sort of a very provincial Texas politician who had become president, but really didn't know much about the rest of the world and effectively was um uh, really incapable of understanding other countries and their political needs and issues. And um, Francis thought I was really wrong in that portrayal. He said Johnson was far more complex than that, much more intelligent than I gave him credit for. And so um, it did open my eyes to, to you know, some of the wider implications of Johnson's uh, policies. Could you take me through some of those steps? Because I only I think I'm in the boat of the stereotypical viewpoint of Johnson. I mean, I've listened to some of the tapes. I've heard him talk about tafioca uh, pudding, um, and I've heard a lot of statements. And obviously, if you look into the Kennedy uh, topic in general or an administration, everyone just blames Johnson for piggybacking on Kennedy's things. And for me, I'm like, I got to know more about who Johnson was specifically. There's obviously got to be people that have written books about him that were fans. Um, and probably show a different light than uh, I guess what a, a lot of the Kennedy people would probably say. So um, could you take me through some of the steps that kind of first uh, or where you first started looking to kind of change your opinion on Johnson? Well, 
I was always uh, at least modestly sympathetic to Johnson because I recognized that he uh, singularly, I think, was the most progressive civil rights president of the 20th century. Um, even though he possessed many of the attitudes and ideas, racial stereotypes of his upbringing, uh, without Lyndon Johnson, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Housing Act, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, these things would not have happened, or at least they would have happened in a much slower process. Johnson fundamentally transformed um, the uh, American situation, particularly for African-Americans. I think he was uh, an extraordinary president um, in what he did and what he accomplished. And I think I've always felt that, even though I had a, a negative view of his foreign policy. What my research led me to realize was that his foreign policy was more complex than I had imagined. I had imagined it all only a being about Vietnam. But in fact, Johnson did have a fundamental understanding of the importance of U.S.-European relationships. Um, and he recognized that it was crucial that the United States maintain uh, the NATO alliance, and that the NATO alliance had been fundamental to Americans' power as also to the peace and stability of Europe after World War II. And I think Johnson, even though he uh, often made uh, wisecracks about his own background and about foreigners and the rest, really uh, trusted both, uh, knew how to uh, uh, advocate for and trusted his advisors on certain issues, uh, particularly keeping the alliance together. So one of the most fundamental things that happened during the Johnson administration was that French President Charles de Gaulle decided to leave the alliance. Um, de Gaulle was very anti-American in, in his rhetoric, not necessarily in his actions, but in his rhetoric, he often criticized the United States. And it would have been very easy for Johnson to have engaged in a type of uh, tit-for-tat uh, rhetoric against France during this time. After all, we had liberated France 20 years earlier, and here's de Gaulle saying, you know, you guys have to get out of France, uh, you Americans. There's a famous cartoon, political cartoon at the time of de Gaulle standing in a cemetery uh, with American uh, crosses there saying you have to get out of, of France. And it's that that sort of anger toward the French could have been something Johnson used. But in fact, Johnson said, and he said this to Robert McNamara, he said, when a man asks you to leave his home, you just take your hat and leave. You don't, you don't fight it. You don't, you know, he used a sort of folksy thing, but he was really quite smart in how he handled this. He, he uh, relocated the alliance, the NATO alliance to Belgium um, and uh, recentered it around Germany and Britain. And France eventually, uh, 40 years later, France would come back into the NATO alliance. But um, Johnson was, I think, uh, perceptive enough to recognize that what de Gaulle was doing was partly for his own political benefit at home, and that there was no way France could really effectively lead the alliance since any attack by the Russians across Germany was inevitably going to involve France. So France was in the alliance whether it wanted to be or not. And I think this type of perception, this type of understanding was something I didn't think Johnson had. Um, he was not, he didn't verbalize all of this. He didn't say it on the tapes or in the on the phone. He would say other types of things. And he often used his phone calls to vent against his political enemies and others. But I think what I got from Francis Bator was a sense that this was a much more complicated and intelligent man who understood the necessities of being president and understood how to get things done. Um, I obviously Vietnam remains an, an issue, and I, I, I have a, my own understanding of that and how Johnson got into it. But I do, um, I do recognize, I think, much more that he accomplished a great deal as president of the United States.
When it comes to Johnson's, his full length of his administration, where did you see his most focus from the beginning compared to where it was in the end? I noticed this change that people talk about, like Johnson grew his hair all along and everything like that. And, you know, it has me curious because, you know, I've listened to a bunch of tapes and phone calls, and I will bring up the point that is against a lot of people that do side with Kennedy is the fact that it was yet to be seen what Kennedy was going to do in Vietnam. I know people have varying degrees if he was actually going to pull out or not. Um, that one, I kind of stay agnostic on the whole Vietnam war issue. I know how big and kind of tension sided it is, but there's a lot of going on more than just one side's perspective of it. So it's hard to really get the full detail, but I'm curious because after the Kennedy assassination, Johnson takes office. Um, I'm wondering in the first couple of years, how he was dealing with this whole assassination appointing the Warren Commission members and so much of that that I've looked at where I start going, when did he start implementing his first policies? How was his first day in office compared to his last days? If you could give me like a timeline of some of the problems that he faced, things that were on his mind, just so I can get a better sense, because that's a time period that I'm a couple of generations removed from. And I'm hoping to get better context on the situation as well, too, because somehow this man goes from the Johnson everyone hates in the beginning to this guy that was obviously changing something towards the end of his administration. So somewhere in that time flux, he had a complete change of heart and a bigger capacity. And I don't know what the history books teach. That's the thing. Who does the history books teach? They teach pre Johnson or they teach after Johnson? Well, you, you got to remember, Johnson inherited a, a really difficult situation. Here is the young president of the United States slain, seen as a martyr uh, by many, slain in Johnson's home state. Uh, and Johnson felt himself, and he often said this, that he was illegitimate, that, that many people looked on him as not deserving the presidency. Um, what you see in Johnson at the beginning, though, is an incredible work ethic um, where he is hitting all cylinders after Kennedy's death. He is, he is on the phone to every congressman, to senators, to try and get things done, particularly for initially he had to get a foreign aid bill passed. Um, he wanted to get a, a measure passed on trade with the Soviet Union that was uh, really going to be quite groundbreaking in the sense of easing the Cold War. He also, almost from the beginning, said, let us continue, and he put a high priority on uh, getting the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed, which he got passed in July of 1964. His legislative record was very impressive in his first year in office, and he enjoyed enormous popularity during that time. I mean, he wins re-election or he wins election in 64 with, um, you know, 60% uh, of the vote, and only loses the solid South in Arizona. That's the only states he lost. And he lost them because of the civil rights bill, because he had been so outspoken in favor of civil rights. So he enjoys a great deal of popularity, and, a, and a, he wins a landslide election in 1964 that not only was a personal vindication of him, but also swept into office large numbers of liberal Democrats. And Johnson believed that he needed to act very quickly with those additional liberal Democrats to implement the rest of his program. And so in 65, he sets a record for the legislation passed. I mean, all sorts of of, of, of things that we take for granted today, Medicare, um, housing uh, bills, um, uh, uh, the Voting Rights Act, um, all of this stuff comes in his first year uh, as after his election. Um, he also makes the, the very fateful choice in 1965 to escalate the Vietnam War. Uh, it's very fateful. I think in part he makes it because he fears that if he doesn't escalate the war, the United States will lose and that if it loses in Vietnam, his political credibility would have been damaged so that he couldn't accomplish anything. 
So I think he he also he also believed that Vietnam um, should not go communist. But I think that was actually not as much the reason for going in as his own sense of what he was trying to accomplish overall. Um, and this is a controversial issue about exactly why Johnson escalates the war. I think it makes more sense the fact that if you look at if you lose that Vietnam War, I mean, Russia is going to see that as the America can't even take over Vietnam. And it's that's a big implications. I've even heard and there's a, it's a really fringe theory. But the idea of we're in Vietnam was because it's one of the largest heroin things um, next to Afghanistan, which I mean, look, if you look at why there's many reasons to go to war, there's a lot of reasons to go. But I mean, Finding out which individual won, I just start going, all right, they all kind of make a little bit of sense. No, no, no. I, I think what people forget is that in the post-war period, 1950s and 60s particularly, there was an overwhelming consensus that we needed to contain communism, that communism was on the march, it was a, a dire threat to American security, and that we needed to stop communism in the same way we had stopped Nazism and fascism and World War II. We had to do act in, in advance. We had to, to be proactive in stopping the advance of communism. And that's what was seen in South Vietnam. It was seen as a, a test case of communism trying to advance and take over another country. There was the so-called domino theory that if you take over one, the others will fall. So Johnson was caught up in that and he escalated the, the war. Um, Toward the end of his presidency, he was still getting things done, but he focused more on foreign affairs. He was trying to get a, a, a nuclear arms agreement with the Soviet Union. Um, he made gestures toward China, uh, opening up China, although that would, wouldn't really happen until Kissinger and Nixon um, in their period of time. But he was trying to accomplish more internationally. Um, his domestic programs had largely stalled by that point. And he was more focused internationally by the end of his presidency. And his popularity did go down considerably. Um, at, at its lowest point, it was about 35% approval. It was a little better by the end of his presidency, but he left office unpo uh, relatively unpopular. When it comes to Johnson, did you look at any of his diaries or listen to any of those tapes to try and get it? Because I always find that always enlightens me a little bit more about a better insight of a man. I mean, John, every president had some type of remark that obviously wasn't the public's knowledge. I think I heard Kenneth Kennedy cuss about some chairs, which I just found fascinating. And I even heard Johnson talk about making the crotch size in his pants a little bit bigger because it was like riding a barbered wire bike. I don't care who you are. That's hilarious. And I, I kind of listen to those and it just gives me like better insight. I think this idea of like a public persona versus a personal persona and these tapes kind of reveal that for us. And a lot of people look for like, especially in the Kennedy assassination, try to look for like smoking gun tapes and all that. I don't look for that. I just kind of just try and examine who this person person is and how do I get a better understanding of who this individual is and I mean he talked about it. you hear him talk what we all know presidents age in office like dramatically they get gray hairs very very fast they usually look like 10 20 years older Johnson was worried about weight gain like he was talking about so he was like still trying to like you know pay attention to his lifestyle as well too but also remember he has to run a country he has to show up at parties I'm just curious if you came across any diaries or tapes that gave you a better insight into this person was well, Johnson did not keep diaries uh, explicitly. What he did do is, is he recorded his conversations, telephone conversations, and sometimes cabinet meeting conversations. And I've listened to lots and lots of those. Um, they have their hysterically funny moments. Uh, there's a great one early in his presidency where he's talking to a Texas legislature, uh, a Texas congressman about why 
Um, he needs not to uh, publicize the fact that Johnson was reaching out toward the Soviet Union because uh, anti-communism was still so strong. And he, he makes an analogy to, you know, you slept with someone last night. You don't want to publicize it, do you? And then the guy, the Texas Congress said, I wish I did, you know, and this sort of thing. They they, they, they could get crude. And Johnson, you, you reference to the famous Hager Slacks tape and some of the other ones that he would do. But he also has a lot of boring tapes that a lot of people never listen to because they're about policy, they're about legislative actions, they're about negotiation. And Johnson famously lived on the telephone. He would call people early in the day. Um, there's another famous story of Johnson calling up one legislator at 6 a.m. saying, hey, what are you doing? The guy said, I'm just waiting for my president to call, you know, this sort of thing. Um, Johnson famously had a telephone installed in his bathroom stall so he could always be on the phone. Um, he was, um, he, he um, I think the picture that emerges is a complicated one because there's the folksy, vulgar uh, type of Johnson and there's also the policy wonk. I mean, he could get deep into the details of policies, issues, congressional negotiations, and he did that. And uh, he was very knowledgeable of the people he was dealing with on Capitol Hill. He had been a uh, head of the Senate, one of the most effective majority leaders in American history during the 50s. So he knew his Senate and he knew his House well. He was, in that sense, he was a creature of domestic politics. And to a certain extent, he looked at foreign policy like he looked at senators. He looked at people he dealt with in Britain and France as like part of the Senate that he had to deal with and uh, negotiate with. Uh, his real problem came as he really didn't understand the, the opposition he faced in Vietnam. He never really grasped how determined the communists were to, 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 to win the war at any cost. And I think he was always hoping that he gets he would get some point uh, that would be some sort of negotiated settlement, and he just couldn't do it. And it was not there. And uh, for that reason, the war ended up uh, being the sort of albatross for his administration. But he accomplished a great deal more than just the war. Um, so one, one thing that you usually hear about the counterculture movement is the number of Vietnam activists, the people that were trying to stop the Vietnam War. Um, I, I do bring up the perspective. I wonder, I mean, I'm not saying the war was good at all. I'm just bringing up the perspective of, I wonder what pressures the president had to pay attention to because of the fact there was so much scrutiny that was going on. I mean, it makes sense about this communism act. Like you can't look soft on communism. There's a lot of that out there. Um, but I wonder what his main concern was during the Vietnam War. Was he really concerned about losing the war? Or was he also concerned about the public display image, not only to Russia, but also the image to the United States? I mean, a lot of people that were anti against it. There's also the people that were pro Ford as well, too. So, I mean, he's got to protect his image as a president and hope we don't end up getting what happened later with Nixon, which was the idea of impeachment. Right. No, I think Johnson, early in his administration and when he escalated the war, what he really feared was another Korea. He, you know, this is this is something that many people don't recognize, but the Korean War still loomed heavily on people. And in the Korean War, the United States had escalated the war by marching into North Korea and trying to liberate the country. The result was that the Chinese sent in a million men and the, it became a bogged down conflict and which was very unpopular for Americans. It was, it was the first stalemated war, even though effectively the United States actually achieved its objectives of defending South Korea. South Korea today is, is an incredible success story. But at the time, most Americans thought the Korean War was a huge mistake. Johnson was trying to avoid that. He was trying to avoid escalating the war and getting into a conflict with China or Russia that he didn't want. 
He wanted to limit the war. He wanted to keep it limited. In a little way, there's a little bit of an analogy here to Biden and Ukraine. Biden doesn't want the Ukraine war to turn into a big war. And Johnson didn't want the Vietnam war to turn into a huge World War III. And so he tried to limit uh, what happened. The United States never set foot, for example, in North Vietnam. It didn't send its troops into the North, which would have been a way to win the war. Uh, Johnson was determined simply to get, he, wants, he wanted a settlement. He wanted a peace settlement, not a, a victory in the traditional sense. And he feared escalation. He feared nuclear war. Now, we have to remember, this is only a few years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when, you know, there were almost, you know, 40, 50 million people would have been dead within an hour had that crisis gone to a nuclear war. So, so that, I'd rather my kids be red than dead is the question. Yeah, no, no. I mean, Johnson did not want that. He, he did not want uh, nuclear weapons were a heavy thing hanging on the the, the president of the United States then. The, the idea that you could destroy much of the world in an instant. If you, if you decided to escalate the war and send the nuclear up, I mean, there were thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons on a hair spin and a hair, uh, hair, hair, trigger. Well, hair trigger, uh, uh, launch. And, you know, this was a, this was the, the sort of thing that preoccupied him. So I think his greater concern, at least initially, was the idea of avoiding escalation. Later, it became more the idea of trying to get a settlement that would vindicate the war trying to get out in a way that um, it would appease those who, who really oppose the war in the United States. When it comes to Vietnam being one of his probably people say his biggest mess up, I wouldn't call it his biggest mess up. I would just say his biggest focus um, through a lot of his time in office. So I just go, I mean, if he didn't have the Vietnam War to worry about, would we see better policies and better maybe historical accuracies on some things and there wouldn't be such controversial issues because of the Vietnam War. I mean, you have to kind of put your main focus in that as well, too, because it is such a big, hot, controversial issue. But I feel like if he didn't have that, I mean, what other things would he have accomplished? Maybe we would have had a better kind of representation of Johnson as well, too. Well, you know, the the famous congressman, John Lewis, um, who's been celebrated quite a bit here in Nashville, of course, lately and, and uh, died just a couple of years ago. They used to say that without Vietnam, Lyndon Johnson would have been the greatest president um, in the 20th century. That he, that without Vietnam, that his accomplishments in civil rights would have gone much further. That his accomplishments, he would have uh, negotiated an arms agreement with the Soviet Union that would have limited the arms race. He probably would have um, reduced the the level of American uh, the defense budget. These sorts of things. He he would have uh, brought in much more, uh, perhaps something like universal health care as well. These things like that that were on the agenda of many uh, progressive activists of the time that might have been accomplished had he not had the Vietnam War. So, I think in that sense, if you have a counterfactual about uh, Lyndon Johnson, that without Vietnam, he is really quite an extraordinary president of the United States. He would have been. Before I ask about his civil rights, I got to ask about um, his connection with Khrushchev. Um, was a lot of that, like how much of it was kept secret, like from the public that he was talking to? I mean, I get it because if you're colluding with what you've demonized, I wouldn't say demonized, but I would say portrayed as an enemy, communism being an enemy in a sense. There was a giant fear of that back then. Um, if you're making like like even Kennedy making back channels with Khrushchev, like Kennedy, the, the Khrushchev and Kennedy letters we know about, that all went away when Kennedy died. 
Um, and Khrushchev made statements about that as well, too. But Johnson tried to rekindle some of whatever Kennedy had already accomplished. But that's still starting from scratch because you have to think of the aspect of those are two completely different individuals. I mean, they're just two human beings. One, you have a personal relationship and then gets killed. Now Khrushchev's like, who's this guy? I don't really know this guy. So that's what I'm trying to figure out is like, I mean, how much of it was kept secret? And what did he have to do to try and you know, get this connection with Khrushchev. I mean, Khrushchev understood the idea of peace with Kennedy, but I'm just curious how Johnson pitched it. Well, keep in mind that Khrushchev only lasts till October of 64. So Khrushchev remains premier of the Soviet Union for only an additional year than Johnson. Johnson, Johnson would have loved to have met him. I think they actually would have gotten along very well. Um, Johnson certainly met, uh, sent um, uh, notes to Khrushchev indicating the desire for a summit meeting at some point. Um, after his election, but Khrushchev was overthrown in October of 1964 by a collective leadership of the Soviet Union that were not satisfied with how he had behaved. And this group, uh, led by Leonid Brezhnev, who was the party secretary, and Alexei Kosygin, who was the foreign minister, they largely had a very different uh, approach. They wanted, certainly wanted to maintain a sort of peaceful coexistence, but they they were more interested in asserting uh, the Soviet Union as the leader of communism against China. Soviet Union and China were in a rivalry then over who was leading the, the communist movement. And I think uh, Brezhnev and Kosygin were far more interested in making sure that the Soviets were seen as the leaders of international communism than necessarily in terms of peace with the U.S. Now, Johnson did continue to make um, uh, secret gestures to the Soviets, uh, particularly um, early on, and this is something I, I talk about in my book, um, he recognized the Soviets feared the Germans were moving toward a nuclear weapon. He was fear, fearful of that. And he made it very clear that the United States would oppose any German nuclear um, ability. And uh, for that reason, he sponsored the Non-Proliferation Act, and he made it clear to the Soviets that this would be something the U.S. would support. The Russians were interested in it. And eventually it was negotiated during Johnson's uh, presidency, even though Vietnam was always an irritant because the Soviets supported North Vietnam, we supported South Vietnam, and they would their propaganda against us was pretty strong. But Johnson recognized the need for um, uh, uh, peaceful negotiations with the Russians on nuclear weapons. You mentioned the propaganda was really strong. What type of propaganda were they employing? Well, you know, they they basically said the United States was trying to destroy South, uh, Vietnam, uh, that it was a capitalist uh, plot against uh, that it was trying to to roll back and conquer North Vietnam and destroy the socialist revolution there, and that it was illegitimate for the United States to be in Vietnam. That Vietnam should be allowed to choose its own government and all of this, and and they they basically attacked the United States as an imperialist warmonger in Vietnam and. Um, that that had a, a lot of appeal in the world because the United States was waging war in Vietnam in a way that it, it's not exactly the same, but in a way, the way the Russians are seen in Ukraine, it's, it, this is the way men, many countries in the world saw the United States in Vietnam. They didn't see why the United States was there at all. I think there's a lot of questions like that all around. But um, when it comes to Johnson's uh, moves in the civil rights movement, um, for me, like I said, I know the stereotypical Johnson, so it just seems opposite that he was even for civil rights at all. But obviously, he did something. I'm just curious to, I mean, how big of a change was that for you, um, considering when you started looking into it, you saw that there was obviously he did a lot for civil rights. Yeah, 
Um, one of the things you've got to remember, and this gets lost sometimes in the uh, the martyrdom of John Kennedy, is John Kennedy couldn't get anything through Congress. John Kennedy could. John Kennedy did announce that civil rights was a priority, but he couldn't get his measures passed. Lyndon Johnson knew how to work power. He knew how to to manipulate to to convince Congress people, and he took up the the challenge of getting the Civil Rights Act. And remember, the Civil Rights Act. Uh, prohibited discrimination in public facilities. Uh, it, it ended segregation in the South, effectively. It ended the, the almost apartheid-like rule we had in this country. It was an enormous step because, um, you know, Southern congressmen uh, were a powerful part of the Democratic Party, and they resisted this tenaciously, and they had the filibuster. They had all sorts of ways to stop it, and Johnson, Johnson undermined them and, and got it passed, and that was a big, big deal. And then not only that, then a year later, he gets the Voting Rights Act passed, which was one of the most single, most consequential bits of legislation, getting African Americans into the position where they could vote in the South, changed the whole landscape of American politics and really altered it. That was all Johnson. In that sense, um, I think you know, those are historic achievements. Um, yes, Johnson was helped by the fact that there was the civil rights movement. I, I don't want to, I actually should refrain from saying it was all Johnson. Johnson operated at one level, the civil rights movement increased public pressure at another. But if you had to have both. You had to have both a, a, a grassroots movement pushing for these changes, but you also needed uh, pop politicians like Lyndon Johnson trying to push through these legislative steps. So I think that is always going to be seen, in my view, as a huge accomplishment of Lyndon Johnson. A lot of times when you're viewing what Johnson did, and a lot of people think he was a big, bolsterous, brash figure and kind of arrogant in a way and a little bit ignorant. And I think it's because his type of, I guess, presidency was power politics. He knew the way it's the same way J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, you can talk as much trash as you'd like on J. Edgar Hoover, but if you really examine from his perspective, I mean, the way he was viewing things was blackmail, all these types of things, getting dirt, whether it was joking or not, you just kind of look, he got things that he wanted done because he knew how some of these people worked. And if he looked at Kennedy, and that is one thing about Kennedy, I mean, he had to do so many things in secret where it was just like, why isn't he like he's doing stuff, but it's happening at a very slow rate. And like we said in the beginning is yet to be seen what was going to happen in Vietnam and things of that sort. But it's because they did not like a lot of the things he was pushing. I mean, a lot of the things he was saying, too. I mean, it sounds normal today, but you listen to somebody say that back in the 60s, especially the Richard Nixon and the JFK debates. Oh, my God. The things he was saying, I was like, I'm pretty sure I saw this on a recent show about um, the guy from Dumb and Dumber, the one blonde hair dude. He was on a like a political show and he was saying, like, we're a country that doesn't recognize the country from two decades ago. And Kennedy said that in the debates versus Nixon. And it's like everyone else is just talking about we're going to win Vietnam. And Kennedy's coming in there talking about we need to work at the new space, which is, or new science, which is space. You know, we need to win that. And that was revolutionary. But then you see Johnson's style of presidency i mean it was effective way more effective only because he knew how to work the system he did and you know i think uh, uh the comparison with hoover is interesting hoover was more of a bureaucratic uh person knew how to move within that johnson recognized the political levers to pull and recognized how to um convince people that it was in their political interest to, to act in certain ways he also knew how to trade things uh, he would trade the judgeships, for example, with Everett Dirksen, the Republican leader, he would trade approving a judgeship for Dirksen to get a, a, a Republican vote on, a, on an appropriations bill or something. He knew the trade-offs that existed in Washington. He also knew how to mobilize public sentiment when he needed to. 
he was not a great orator, but he gave a couple of really impressive speeches along the way, particularly after the uh, or in the Civil Rights Bill. Um, so, you know, he was, uh, you know, he was both a, a, a very effective politician. Um, he didn't have the glamour and style of Kennedy, and he was always in some ways being compared to Kennedy in that. It's also, there was a, a something of a cultural conflict. America in the 1960s, Kennedy was revered because he seemed to be the best that America had, this sort of aristocracy of Massachusetts, Northeastern, Harvard-educated, all of that, the best and the brightest, whereas Johnson seemed like crude Texas Southern in a period of time in which that was not really uh, something that Americans wanted to celebrate. And I think that cultural clash um, also hurt Johnson's uh, image um, uh, as a figure. And, you know, the Kennedy people never fully accepted him. Uh, the, you know, he had not been accepted by them. Uh, when he was vice president, he was largely excluded from the inner circle uh, of Kennedy's advisors. And he was not the second most powerful person in Washington. That was Robert Kennedy, not Johnson. So Johnson, Johnson had some slights he had to deal with. And the fact that he um, was not uh, traditionally well-educated or well-mannered in the ways in which, say, John Kennedy was. How did you look into any of the reception from Dallas when Johnson became president? I mean, I, I think what people mentioned in the Kennedy uh, case is the fact that Kennedy only had Johnson on there because they needed Dallas. Like it was a good way to win that ticket. And I think it makes a lot of sense too. Um, but I'm just curious. I mean, if you said, I think you said Arizona uh, rejected Johnson later. Um, I'm curious how Dallas reception of it. I mean, that's, a, that's his, that's his uh, state. No, I mean, he carried, he, you know, he, he, you're absolutely right. The, the 1960 election is one of the last elections where it really mattered who the vice presidential candidate was. Um, and Johnson uh, was so strong a figure in Texas that he was able to help Kennedy win that state. And that was absolutely crucial to Kennedy's victory. And that was why he was on the ticket, because he was not sort of an ideological ally of, of Kennedy. He was not a friendly, he, he did not have a friendly relationship with him beforehand. In fact, Kennedy probably would have preferred Henry Jackson of Washington or someone else uh, to be vice president. If he didn't need Johnson, he needed Johnson. Uh, by 1964, that's less the case because Johnson is so successful that he carries almost everything except the really the segregationist states in the deep south, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, states like that, Louisiana. But he carried Texas again uh, in 1968 or 1964. And uh, that was probably, Johnson was a conservative Democrat at a time when Democrats were still very powerful in Texas. Uh, many of those people would eventually become Republican, and Texas would eventually turn Republican by the 70s. When did China come into the picture? Uh, China was, well, China was always in the picture in the sense that some of the fears about Vietnam were that the Chinese were going to sweep into Asia and come down and conquer other countries. Um, China, the relationship between the United States and China was completely uh, toxic during this period. We had no real relationship with communist China. Johnson knew he wanted to have it, but politically it was very difficult because the Chinese had fought us in Korea. And the fact that they had killed Americans there made China a, a difficult political issue. It wasn't until Richard Nixon uh, in 1971, sending Henry Kissinger on a secret mission uh, to open up to China. And China's only real reason for, according to the United States, was that they feared Russia they, and, and they feared that the Soviet Union was going to attack them. So they wanted to make a, a better relationship with the United States.
even though they were communists. Um, so did you look into the statements that Johnson made when he was finishing his last year in office? I feel like at that point he was, had to be beaten down or exhausted in some sense for everything, the Vietnam war and that whole, you know, long period as well too. Yeah, no, I did. And I mean, Johnson was, I think that's why he pulled out of the race in March of 68. He said, I'm not going to run for president. And he devoted a lot of time um, in his last few months to trying to get an arms deal with the Russians. And he was about to announce a summit with the Soviets that would have signed an agreement when they invaded Czechoslovakia in, 19, in August of 68. And he had to cancel the trip. He was very disappointed by that. He really wanted to um, have uh, the end of his presidency, the first major nuclear weapons agreement. But instead, that had to go to Nixon later. And uh, did you look into anything when he retired and he was back at his farm ranch? I mean, you got it. Come on. The submarine car or the boat car, whatever he had. That's nuts. I've never heard anything like that before, but I saw that story. I was like, so that's real. There's a real. Like, There's boat. a real. Oh, yeah. that's crazy. No, he was, uh, you know, the, the papers on that are still somewhat restricted. They haven't opened up all of the uh, various correspondence and things that he did after he retired. Um, I'm hoping that the new head of the LBJ library is going to finally open everything so that we can get a full picture of Johnson in retirement. But Johnson, Johnson knew he, I think Johnson had a sense he wasn't going to live very long. He wrote his memoirs very quickly. Um, he invited scholars down there and, you know, he had a symposium on civil rights and that. But he was, he, um, I think one of the things he went back to after he retired or after he left the presidency, he went back to smoking and drinking. He had stopped smoking and drinking when he was president. And, um, you know, um, that killed him. I mean, he died, I think to myself, he died at a very young 64 years old. He was uh, and uh, from his heart condition. Uh, yeah, I didn't know he picked up smoking and drinking again. I knew uh, you might be able to verify this, but did he call Jackie Kennedy a lot? Um, he called her early in his administration. Those those tapes have been quite famous because Jackie sounds like she's flirting with him. Uh, it's it's a very weird. You can hear the the tapes um, in 1964. Um, he called her a couple of times. He, he actually considered appointing her ambassador to Mexico um, because he thought that would be a, a you know, a, a really public relations thing and it would be really favorable than that. But she was not interested in politics and she sort of avoided. And, you know, she was much closer. And, and as Robert Kennedy became more of an oppositional figure, she avoided any contact with Johnson. And uh, did, would you look into the Kennedy assassination at all when it comes to Johnson, just some of the things? I mean, was there anything like, obviously there's, I, I can probably bounce some questions off you that would be more conspiratorial, but I'm trying to look at the find a balance in it. I mean, there's a famous phone call um, where Johnson asked, and they were talking about the number of shots that were fired. And he mentions how many, and he, the guy goes three, and he goes, were they any of them fired at me? And that's kind of like this self-preservation aspect. Like, did he care about Kennedy? I mean, does that sound conspiracy to you or do you have more of a rational take to that? No, no, no. I think Johnson was just wondering if it, if it was part of a plot to take out large numbers of the U.S. government. I mean, yes, and he might have been also wondering that they try to shoot me. I mean, they shot Connolly um, as well as Kennedy. No, I my take on the assassination is that Johnson recognized that the assassination could be a politically really divisive issue if Americans believe that it was a communist plot. Um, Lee Harvey Oswald was a communist. He was a Marxist. He believed in the Cuban Revolution. Um, if, um, he, if he was seen as part of an effort by the Soviets or Cubans to take out Kennedy, that could be the prelude to war. And Johnson wanted to suppress that. And I think he wanted 
the Warren Commission to come back with the verdict it did, that it was an isolated thing, that Oswald was a sociopath, this sort of thing. So I think he was happy to have that be the uh, answer. But he also knew that Kennedy had been trying to kill Castro. He wondered whether Castro had tried to get Kennedy first. Um, so there were elements in Johnson's mind that were conspiratorial, but they were more conspiratorial about what he thought might have been Oswald's motivation to kill Kennedy. Alleged, let's just say alleged, I am in the boat that Oswald didn't do it. I had Robert Blakey on the show from House Select Committee on Assassinations, and he admitted Oswald was intelligence. Um, I've also, there's 13,000 documents that were released, and you don't have to get into all that, but um, there's some well, interesting I, we, we, would, we would have to We would have to agree to disagree on that one. I'm absolutely certain. Um, Max Holland, who is writing the definitive study of the Warren Report, is a good friend of mine. And he uh, he has convinced me, and I I've watched his documentary. He's convinced me that I've I'm seen this stuff. This. Yeah, I've seen this so, stuff. I don't agree with it because there's a lot of things that he's missing out on it. But um, yeah, I've had Posner on here as well too, and you know I proved some things Posner said wrong as well too from the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Uh, but when it comes to Johnson and him fighting with Kennedy before the whole motorcade route hits about just Connolly riding in a car. Did you look into that at all? That's like a big area of contention again between the community where it's like, what were they arguing about? They Connolly riding in whose car? Why did that really matter? And things of that sort. And yeah, politicians, know. you know, that sort of thing. The president and vice president can't ride together. That's an obvious secret service issue. You, you keep them separate in these sorts of circumstances, but you know, John Connolly, uh, you know, Kennedy was trying to patch up a feud in Texas politics between Connolly and and uh, the more liberal uh, 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 Texas Democrats that didn't like him. And uh, Kennedy was also there to raise money. I mean, Kennedy, Texas was a big fundraising state for the Democrats. So I, I don't I, I, I don't share in the conspiratorial views. And the fact that they argued about cars doesn't really um, have a much impact on my thinking about it. But uh, you know, again, uh, we can agree to disagree on that one. I do think it's a little bit strange, just like some factors like washing the clothes of Kennedy and immediately after he's assassinated, basically, and taken to Parkland and then the washing out of the limo. Like there was just some stuff where it's like the reason why Jack Ruby shot Oswald, like that thing for everybody that leaves a opening question of like, what the hell is going on? And then you kind of start realizing, I mean, look at what came out during Watergate as well, too. I mean, the amount of stuff that Nixon was going on and deeper politics and things. I mean, they showed a freaking heart attack gun in the church committee. I'm like, what the hell was going on with these agencies? And then I find out um, our involvement in Latin America and what, what we were doing over there. I was like, I've never even heard, besides Cuba, I had never heard about any involvement in any Latin American country before that. I'm like, the history books, at least from the ones I've read, have not showed that at all. But I mean, there was, we were spreading it more than just Vietnam. I think Russia, China, I think China's new. Um, at least in what usually gets talked about when you look into the Kennedy assassination, everything always gets mentioned about Russia or Cuba. Did Johnson ever have a problem with Cuba? Yes. Yeah. No, Cuba was a thorn in, in every American president's side. And um, not long after he became president, the Cuban government cut off the water supply to the Guantanamo base, and they had to arrange a new water supply for, for the Marine base there. Uh, no, Cuba was a constant issue for the United States, and Cuba was spreading revolution in Latin America, and the United States was trying to stop it. Uh, we had the CIA capture and kill Che Guevara down in Bolivia and all of this sort of stuff. So, yeah, Cuba was an ongoing problem, and I think the Kennedy administration had been trying to assassinate Castro. Johnson did stop those programs, but he uh, 
he continued to want to get uh, contain Cuba and, and uh, prevent it from causing uh, or uh, leading to more revolution in Latin America. Did he ever reach out to Castro? Good question. Um, I think there were some uh, maybe low level um, uh, attempts, but Castro wasn't really interested in, in much of a relationship with the United States during this time. I mean, Castro Castro saw the United States as essentially trying to bring about his overthrow. And so um, Kennedy himself had made some gestures toward Castro, even at the same time as he was promoting plans to kill him. He was also reaching out to him. So there may have been, I just don't know offhand, right, right, whether Johnson ever initiated anything of real consequence. Did you ever come across difficulties with the mob during Johnson's administration? I know Robert Kennedy went on like a tear after the mob for a while. And I feel like even with his brother's death, he might have stopped, but there's still the mob kind of was being targeted in a sense in media wise as well, too. Yeah, I don't honestly, <laughs> excuse me, I, I don't feel competent to really uh, uh, comment on that. I, I didn't really do any research on that. When it comes to Johnson's involvement and in like, did you look into any little smaller Latin American countries out there as well, too? I mean, did he have back and forth associations about what was going on, like with Hoover, about what was going on in Latin America and what their kind of goal was to accomplish as well, too? Well, Johnson Johnson was determined to avoid any Latin American situation similar to Cuba. So in April of 1965, he sends in the Marines to the Dominican Republic to prevent what he thought was a communist revolution. Um, there's a lot of dispute over exactly what was going on in the Dominican Republic then, um, but it it did succeed in stopping a revolution. And uh, the guy who became the uh, president of the D Dominican Republic, who some people think ended up being a dictator, uh, Joaquin Balaguer, uh, was in power for the next 40 years or, or 20 or 30 years, I should say. Um, Johnson was concerned to keep Latin America non-communist and stable. And so he uh, he relied on this guy, Thomas Mann, Thomas Mann, who really did uh, a lot of the Latin American policy. And that policy was pretty conservative and was designed basically uh, to prevent uh, communist revolutions. So we, for example, uh, we helped uh, a conservative uh, candidate in Chile. We helped him win the election there. Uh, we gave money secretly to his campaign and things like that. And the CIA did some of that during the uh, 60s, uh, providing funds for non-communists or anti-communists. And uh, when it comes, I mean, with Johnson and Nixon, did you look into their relationship at all? Like, how long had they been close? I mean, were they close at all in the first place? Well, they were they were rivals, obviously. Uh, you know, Johnson was a Democrat, although he, you know, he had a certain respect for Nixon. Um, he, he feared him in some ways as a rival, as a possible candidate against him in 64. Uh, when Nixon decided not to run, he was, you know, sort of glad that he wasn't running against Nixon compared to Goldwater, who was considered more extreme at the time and easier to beat. Uh, but Johnson, you know, Johnson had a cordial relationship with Nixon, nothing close. And Johnson also uh, really didn't like what Nixon did toward the end of his administration when Nixon uh, tried to encourage the South Vietnamese not to negotiate uh, with the North Vietnamese right before the election. And uh, Johnson gets pretty angry about this on the I phone. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he in fact, uh, uh, tells one of his friends, this is treason. You know, he's interfering with the election. But of course, Johnson didn't want to publicize what Nixon was doing because he got it through wiretaps. Um, they had uh, extensive wiretapping of the South Vietnamese uh, president and, de and delegation there. So they knew a lot of that Nixon was contacting him. They knew it through wiretaps that were not known or not uh, publicly acknowledged. Was 
so Nixon was trying to get South Vietnam to not negotiate with North Vietnam. Is that was could that be possible? Well, yeah. What what was you have to remember what was happening is right before the '68 election, Johnson announces that he's going to halt the bombing of North Vietnam, and that um, this is going to be a move to try to speed up peace talks. Well, um, South Vietnam, you know, was invited to come to the table to meet North Vietnam. And Nixon sends a secret message to South Vietnam saying, hold on, don't come until after the election's over. Um, hold on, because you'll get a better deal with me than you would with, with Humphrey or the Democrats. And Johnson just really resented this deeply. Wow. I imagine if that exploded out there into the when did that become public knowledge? Um, it 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 probably became it it's become more in the Ken Burns documentary, he makes a lot of it in the documentary he did on Vietnam. It's been public knowledge, or at least been suspected uh, for many years. Um, and I don't remember exactly when it became public. There's some argument that one of the reasons for the Watergate um, or for the break-ins uh, of the Brookings Institution was the fear that they had some documents demonstrating this. Um, I tend to have a different take on it than many other people. I don't think the South Vietnamese were stupid enough to think that they'd get a better deal if they came running to the peace talks in 1968. So I think they they also calculated they might have a better chance with Nixon. So I don't think that Nixon's message had any real consequence. Um, but I, I may be in the minority on that. I just don't think uh, that it meant as much as some people who think that it turned the election around. I think Nixon probably would have wanted to get the glory for himself. Not that as much as Nixon, I think. Nixon believed that Johnson was trying to pull a rabbit out of the hat, the famous October surprise that we often talk about, uh, you know, how um, the idea that something will happen right in October before the presidential election that, uh, you know, will we'll swing the election, uh, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton's emails, uh, yeah. the sort of thing in 2016. And that's what I think Nixon was fearing, that Johnson was using his uh, presidency to, to tilt the election toward Hubert Humphrey. It's interesting because, I mean, I get the national security issue of having wiretaps and finding out that information. I mean, that doesn't just look, I mean, it doesn't just scare the public that, oh, they got wiretaps, but it's an aspect of, no, now that country knows that you're wiretapping them. And that's not, that's a big issue. There's going to be no negotiation after that. But that, uh, that's, that's, I mean, we wiretapped a lot of people during the Cold War. We wiretapped a lot of our friends um, as, and, and as well as our enemies. Uh, our electronic surveillance is pretty elaborate. We have pretty good electronic um, capabilities, and this is something that the CIA and other, uh, the National Security Agency doesn't like to admit. Do you think Nixon would have even gotten any advice from Johnson when he was during his administration at all? Like, it makes he sense. did. Oh yeah, no, he called Johnson several times, and I, I, I think what would be nice if the Johnson Library would open up some of the records of those conversations. He called Johnson a number of times to ask about issues, um, so they. You know, the, 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 when Johnson was alive during that period of Nixon's first presidency, he was the only living ex-president who could actually really was functional. Um, uh, Eisenhower died right at the beginning of Nixon's presidency, and Harry Truman was pretty senile by that point. So Johnson was the only ex-president Nixon could talk to, and he did. He, he talked to him quite a bit. How many memoirs did Johnson write um, towards the end of his death, or towards just the just the one mem just the one member uh, memoir, the Vantage Point, just the one one book. You said it was rushed. I mean, was there a, a purpose for that, or did he just not like? Oh, he wanted. He, he got a he got a big contract. He got a very big contract from uh, I forget the publisher that gave it, and they wanted it passed. 
and Johnson wanted to get it out. And I think he also sensed, I think, his own health and uh, the, some of the things he was doing to his health um, may have given him own a sense of his own mortality. And, and he wanted to get the, the book done before the, uh, as quickly as possible. Do you think that he turned to back into the drinking and smoking because of his presidency? I think, you know, it's like you you mentioned earlier, he grew his hair long. He didn't grow his hair long when he was president. He grew his hair long after he left. Um, he he kind of, you know, he was glad to be rid of the responsibility for Vietnam, for everything else. And I think he he uh, he relaxed and, and went back to some of the self-destructive behavior of smoking, drinking and, you know, carrying on in a way that uh, shortened his life. Now, is it true that there was a plane that crashed on his farm or is that a lie? I don't know anything about that. Okay. I saw that when I was looking at like the underwater car and everything like that is or the underwater car. The, the I just don't, I don't, I, I don't know. You know. I mean, his, if you've ever been to his ranch, it's quite an elaborate. Uh, you've been thing. there? Yes. Yeah. Oh my God. Please tell me a little bit about it. It's just, it's just great. It's, it's, you know, you see the, uh, all the presidential things, you know, his three television sets, all the, where he had, you watch all the networks at the time and, um, his uh, his elaborate office, a helicopter pad that they had there. And, um, you know, he's buried on his ranch or the territory of his ranch. The cemetery is there. It's 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 really quite, uh, you know, he he entertained foreign. You could see some of the places where he had barbecues and, and things for foreign leaders and um, all of that. So it's a it's it's the it was his White House. It was his escape from the White House. But because it was. Uh, he was president. Uh, they had to install all sorts of things to to make it um, a modern, connected uh, place to the rest of the world. You would think after you were done being president that you would also want to retire from all those presidential connections as well, too. I mean, it makes sense like if you have barbecues to maintain relationships with people that obviously you had relationships while you were in office. But also, I mean, I've seen pictures of him talking on like a phone and there's like multiple TV sets and so many technology that's set up around him. And I'm like, I feel like at that point you're living out in the country, man, and just get rid of everything. Dump it in the lake. Oh, uh, well, no, he um, he he needed for a lot of reasons to stay very active and feel like he was still involved in things and that. But he um, I think he, retirement was hard on Johnson. Johnson was a person who thrived on power and suddenly he was without power. And that uh, really did, uh, I think, uh, sort of hasten his end. Now, was the material for Johnson to be able to kind of change your perspective easy to find? Like, is it openly available to like, I mean, probably not shoved as much as the history books teach, maybe a different side of him, or maybe you might encounter more scrutinizing tapes of him, uh, at least in the public, rather than some of the stuff that is also accessible, but it's probably just not pushed out there because it's not as, I wouldn't say jazzy, but not as, as interesting, like some of those phone calls. I mean, you could take it either which way. I find it fascinating. But I mean, was it hard for you to be able to kind of gain this new perspective or was it relatively easy? Well, no. And I want to uh, this is a shout out to the Johnson Library, which I think is one of the best presidential libraries. Uh, Johnson always told the people at the library that he wanted them to focus on the truth of his administration, not try to just promote him the way, say, the Kennedy Library simply promoted uh, JFK and and really was reluctant to open up materials that didn't reflect as well on President Kennedy. Johnson really pushed hard for everything to be open as as much as he could for his presidency. He wanted that, and I think the Johnson Library has made it very good for historians to be able to go there to research. They 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 really made an effort to to make sure that I saw everything that was relevant to my work and and everything. And so I was very, I I just think they're a great library, great staff. 
when it comes to the library and the materials, did they get a lot of donations from like private letters and things of that sort? Devers donate to their archives. Okay. People, people connected to Johnson, like my, my, uh, uh, the national security advisor, Francis Batour, he donated all of his materials to them and, and people connected to the administration connected to Johnson, um, donated materials. And so the library has an excellent collection on 1960s history through perspectives of many of the people who were involved in decisions. And if you were ever going to write another book about Johnson, where would you particularly focus? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think I've, had, I've developed a much stronger interest in Vietnam, but I would I would be interested in exploring a bit more Johnson's um, interactions with Vietnamese leaders. I've been to Vietnam three times now, and I'm fascinated by the country. I mean, it's a, it's a you know it really is quite an amazing place now. Very changed from what it was during the war. Very almost very modern now too. And I think I would have liked to see a little bit more of John, how Johnson interacted with the South Vietnamese politicians he dealt with. Well, I really appreciate the time Tommy gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Um, yes, I have a Vanderbilt. I'm uh, at uh, Vanderbilt University, of course, promotes its professors and uh, or has them out there. And if anyone went to the history department at Vanderbilt University or Google that, they would see my webpage with all sorts of links and connections there to my work. And I'm going to link all your links in the description. It seriously was a pleasure being able to speak with you. Um, about everything from, like I said, this is a character that gets brought up many times when you're researching into Kennedy. Um, did you ever like learn more from Kennedy about from Johnson's administration too? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I mean, I, I found myself uh, having to, to, to research as much also about Kennedy because uh, the connection between Kennedy and Johnson's administration also had. Uh, its connection in some many of the people who worked in both administrations. So Francis actually was initially hired by Kennedy, and so he knew a lot of the Kennedy people. And so I ended up uh, talking with many of them and also researching their materials as well. I wondered if that Alliance for Progress and Alliance for Peace ever really fully, you know, achieved. And I feel like, I mean, did Johnson try his best to maintain that idea that Kennedy had? Yes, he did. But he also, you know, he also changed it in he sort of de-emphasized some of the aspects of it, uh, but they continued to provide lots of money. Uh, this was a period of time in which the United States was big into foreign assistance uh, to Latin American countries, and Johnson uh, uh, continued that program. Well, like I said, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I'm going to link all your links in the description. And thanks for listening to this episode.